0: Well, good morning on this glorious Easter morning. I'm not talking about the weather, I'm simply talking about the fact that Easter is itself glorious. But let me ask what must seem a rather odd question in church on an Easter morning. Because we live in an age which is reluctant to nail anything down as given, may I just ask... How on earth Christianity came into being? Well, there's little doubt that the Christ of Christianity is a significantly influential historical character, and also a real enigma. He was born somewhere around 4 BC, but then dropped out of sight until, approaching 30 years old, he appeared as a captivating itinerant teacher around what were frankly obscure local villages in galilee a backwater of the mighty roman empire he also performed numerous miraculous deeds not surprisingly this combination attracted many people in the area despite him not going out of his way to make a name for himself Early on, however, he began to arouse the suspicion and the hostility of various powerful political and religious groups. The political powers didn't like him because they thought his actions might drive the common people to rebel against their Roman overlords. Mind you, there's really no evidence that he ever encouraged this. The religious power brokers were furious about his challenge to their authority and by association, the national identity, and possibly even more significantly as far as they were concerned, their wealth. Eventually, at the climax of his career, he symbolically cleansed the temple in Jerusalem, and this incited his various opponents to take concerted action against him. In highly irregular circumstances, He was brought to trial and subsequently crucified by the Romans. Now, no honest thinker, even in our sceptical times, seriously doubts any of that. But what happened next is a conundrum, and all manner of both plausible and implausible explanations have been offered. The amazing thing is that if we were to just fast forward by 70 years, from those events, we'd find that this crucified small town carpenter come teacher was being worshipped all over the ancient world as Israel's Messiah and as her God, not just by Jews, but by an increasingly large number of Gentiles. And that is so mind bogglingly incredible that it would have been an utter historical impossibility, but for one fact, it actually happened. For Jews to claim that Jesus was their Messiah and God totally beggars belief, especially as even a brief glance at the life of Jesus shows that he didn't much look like a Messiah. Clearly he was a very controversial figure, But frankly, nobody in Israel was expecting a Messiah quite like him. Even his cousin, John the Baptist, had doubts. For the Jews generally expected that their long-awaited Messiah would win a final decisive victory over the pagans, destroy the ungodly, reinstitute proper temple ritual, and usher in a God-given peace and justice. For the whole world, obviously with Israel as the top dogs, nobody expected the Messiah to be killed by pagans, to symbolically attack the temple, and to suffer injustice. So just about every first century Jew, including his own closest followers, saw Jesus' violent execution as utterly nullifying any claim that he could be the Messiah and that Yahweh's kingdom had come near in him. Messiah figures had arisen before, but not one of them ever had followers going around after their death claiming that they were the Messiah. Before, maybe, but after, you've got to be joking. Then, of course, for Jews to actually worship Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, as God, was utterly preposterous. There wasn't the vaguest hint in their sacred writings that God might come in human form. So what in the world could have happened to force them to this utterly inconceivable position of identifying a human being with God? But it wasn't just the Jews. Gentiles were doing it too. They were following him. And this against a most unlikely background. In the first century, there was widespread suspicion of the Jews and all things Jewish. So for a pagan to worship an obscure Jew as God, well, it just wasn't ever going to happen. Indeed, crucifixion itself was so loathsome People in polite society wouldn't even talk about it. So how could anyone follow a Jew who'd been crucified? Nevertheless, Jesus was the focus, the centre, of a rapidly expanding movement. Quite simply, something must have happened to cause all of this various attempts to provide a naturalistic explanation fail to adequately deal with the facts behind the facts, and that pushes me back to the conclusion that the best explanation of how this all happened is to be found in what Christians have always claimed to be the real story, which is what we have recorded in the New Testament. So where do we start? Well, in Acts chapter 25, we encounter Festus, the procurator of Judea, explaining his confusion about a prisoner he has inherited, Paul. And he's explaining his confusion to King Agrippa. And in verse 19, he says his accusers, the Jews, had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That is the consistent claim of the New Testament writers, that Jesus, crucified, dead, and buried, had risen from the dead, and is now alive. So why, apart from that being utterly outrageous, was this such a big deal? Remember I said that Jesus' conflict with the religious authorities filled them with fury because he was threatening their, their kudos, their authority, and their, their income. Well, it was essential for them to disprove the resurrection because if it was true, he would be vindicated and they would be vanquished. So, unsurprisingly, the earliest attempt to offer an alternative explanation is recorded in the New Testament itself. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 13 tells us the religious re- leaders bribed the tomb guards to say that the disciples had stolen the body. We'll return to that, but if you want to deny a, a, a resurrection, then why not go a step further back and deny the death, deny that he ever died in the first place? After all, if you're not dead, then you can't rise from the dead. One such conjecture was known as the swoon theory. That was advanced in the late 1700s, but I mention it because it was rebranded in the 1960s as the Passover plot. The theory claims that Jesus didn't die. Either he used drugs to fake his death or just fainted from exhaustion and loss of blood, so that later, in the cool of the tomb, he revived, and the disciples thought he'd risen again. This is just too incredible for words. If you've seen The Passion of the Christ movie, you've seen a little of the harsh reality of crucifixion, although it does understate that reality. But let's be clear about this. Crucifixion was totally unsurvivable. Especially, as in Jesus' case, the Romans had flogged him before crucifying him. And it's recorded that the Romans habitually only gave 39 lashes before execution. Because after 40, the victim was considered to be legally dead, and therefore could not be executed. John adds that once Jesus appeared to be dead, in chapter 19 and verse 34 of his gospel, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. Doctors from the United States Medical Association have said that the spear had pierced the sack of fluid around the heart. So if Jesus wasn't dead before that, he most certainly was after. Why was that spear thrust even necessary? Well, quite simply, there were four executioners who all had to sign the death warrant. And if they got it wrong, well, it could well be signing their own death warrant, because they were severely punished. So when Jesus was taken down from the cross... Those men knew he was dead. But honestly, is it really believable that anyone who'd undergone the treatment Jesus suffered and then somehow crept half-dead, weak and ill, out of the grave could have given the disciples the impression he was the Lord of life who'd conquered death in the grave? So, if he was truly dead, isn't it possible that the idea of him rising from the dead was just wishful thinking on behalf of the disciples? There are those who would say so, and one such suggestion was that the women were confused when they went to embalm his body about the the various tombs in the area, and in the half-light of the morning They were unsure about which one was the right one. Now, to be honest, I find this particular suggested version of events rather comical. The women approached an empty tomb, were, to their horror, a young man was standing. He tried to tell the women that they'd got the wrong tomb, saying, no, no, he's not here but pointed to a nearby tomb, saying, See, there's the place where they laid him. But the women were so terrified at being discovered that they fled, thinking that the man had said Jesus was risen from the dead. That's the theory, for what it's worth. But let's just think about it for a moment. If this really did happen, then the disciples who went to check the women's story also went to the wrong tomb. But even if we accept that, that the Jewish leaders, when they asked for a Roman guard to stop the theft of Jesus' body, did not go to the wrong tomb. Nor did the Roman guards, who made it secure. If the bewildered disciples erroneously thought that Jesus was risen, the Jewish authorities would have immediately produced the body from the right tomb and definitively disproved the resurrection. We can say more. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate if he could take the body and was given permission. He was joined in this by Nicodemus. They were Jewish rulers, part of the Sanhedrin, public figures known to Pilate. Their prominence guarantees that if the account of the resurrection was false, it could have been refuted instantly because these were marked men. Okay, now, a little while ago, I said that the earliest attempt to brand the resurrection as a hoax is in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 13, where we read that the elders bribed the soldiers guarding the tomb to say, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while he were, while we were asleep. But the elders had already shot themselves in the foot because of the security that they demanded at the tomb. Mark chapter 16 tells us a large stone was rolled against the entrance of the tomb. So large, in fact, that the very words used in the Greek indicate that this stone was so big that it shocked all who saw it. Normally a slab of stone was rolled down a sloping groove in the ground outside the tomb, finally resting across the entrance. It would be about five foot in diameter, three inches thick, and it weighed a couple of tons. That was a normal one, but Mark hints that this one was bigger, and that's why the women were worried about who would help them. The Jewish leaders told Pilate he said that in three days his grave would be empty. We think it's necessary to make it secure, or his latest deception will be worse than the first. The guard available to Pilate would have been a 16-man elite security unit, and they put a clay seal on the tomb. Nothing else was needed. As this represented the power and the might of the Roman Empire, to break this seal was so serious that it instantly set off a manhunt for the culprit, who, when found, would be crucified upside down so that all could see how seriously Rome viewed such contempt. Despite this security, on the first Easter Sunday, The tomb was found to be empty. And the gospel reports about moving the stone are striking. Each gospel presents it slightly differently, each reinforcing the other. In the Greek, one says that the stone was moved a distance away. Another, it was rolled up a slope right away from the burial place. John says it was picked up and carried away. Isn't that all a bit odd? If disciples or grave robbers were stealing a body, these are the wrong words about the wrong actions. Nobody tries to carry a heavy stone away. They move it as little as possible so they can get in and out quickly and furtively. If that isn't evidence enough, the disciples' accounts via the New Testament aren't actually the only sources that tell us that the tomb was empty. It appeared in both historical Jewish and Roman sources. And if you think about it, that's the strongest possible evidence you can get, because if the opposition admits a fact that they'd rather deny, then that fact's got to be true. Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, warned the Sanhedrin that the, the rise of Christianity could be God's doing. He could never have said that if the tomb wasn't known to have been empty or if the elders had known the whereabouts of Jesus' body. The claim that Jesus was risen wouldn't have stood in Jerusalem for a day if the emptiness of the tomb was not accepted as undeniable by all concerned. I believe we can be confident about what it was that happened to cause the rapid spread of Christianity in the world of the first century. Jesus' resurrection actually took place in real history. We know the place, we know the year, we know the day. It was the third day after his crucifixion at Passover on April the 3rd, A.D. 33. It was the sixth hour. If we'd been at his tomb with a watch, we could have recorded the precise moment. We'd have been waiting at a literal, physical, stone-blocked, Roman-sealed tomb. And there would have been other flesh-and-blood people there, too. One of them was John who peered into the grave and saw the grave clothes, almost like the empty chrysalis of a cocoon, but now collapsed. They were undisturbed, still unravelled lying exactly where Christ's body had been. Peter, being Peter, ventured in and saw the headcloth rolled up in a place by itself. No grave robber would bother to do that, On the top of all of this, the disciples were totally devastated by Jesus' death. They felt that they had wasted three years of of their lives and had just made very public fools of themselves. In fact, they were anxious for their own safety because, as the followers of an insurrectionist, they'd likely be the next ones to be executed a quick return to their former lives was the only safe option. Depressed, frightened, disillusioned, they were in no state to tackle an elite troop of Roman guards, and actually they had no reason even to contemplate it. The Jews and Romans both wanted an end to this messianic nightmare, and if they'd really believed the disciples had stolen the body, They've arrested and tortured them until they confessed. Then they'd have produced the body. The film Risen catches this really well. Despite best efforts, a body was never produced. So is it really plausible that the disciples stole Jesus' body? Given their state of shock, utter Discouragement and anxious fear. What changed? How did they become men and women who who turned the world upside down? Now, while the crucially empty tomb is important, let me just say that for the disciples, that certainly wasn't what clinched the deal. When Mary and the other women went to the disciples, they said, they have taken his body. Not, he's risen from the dead. They were confused, not convinced. What did convince them were Jesus' appearances. For 40 days after rising from the dead, they walked with him, talked with him, and ate with him. For six weeks after the crucifixion, they came into contact with him personally. Critics have tried to argue it was wish-fulfillment. But these appearances were not hallucinations. Psychologists agree that mass hallucinations are actually impossible, and at least one of the appearances was to a group of 500. In point of fact, his appearances were the last thing that the disciples were expecting. Remember how they were still discussing the disappearance of Jesus' body when Jesus himself came to them? And they were scared witless, thinking they'd seen a ghost. It was utterly perplexing and downright incomprehensible. Their reaction, truthfully, was totally logical. However, as he continued to appear to them over the weeks, they realized they'd witnessed something that had changed everything, and it profoundly impacted their lives. Such an impact did it make that their faith swept the world, beginning in and from Jerusalem. Peter preached in Jerusalem saying that they knew where King David's body was. But Jesus' body was missing. Had this not been true, anyone in the audience could have refuted it. The Jews, the Romans, both would have dearly loved to parade his body through the, the city to show everyone that the disciples' message was a lie. But they didn't, because they couldn't. There was no body to find. I'll say it again, this message was preached not in a remote location where no one could verify the account, but in Jerusalem, where all of these events had happened, and very recently, where the story was easiest to disprove. It was from there that the church grew, and Christianity spread. Indeed, it spread so quickly that historians agree that the risen Jesus cannot be a legend. Legends take centuries to grow before they gain acceptance. But Christianity spread immediately and rapidly. It was well established within six decades and it conquered the whole Roman Empire in less than 300 years. Previously cowardly disciples proclaimed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Indeed, forever after, Jesus' resurrection from the dead was central to their preaching. They were persecuted for it, and ultimately all of them gave their lives for the conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead. If this was a hoax, if they'd stolen the body or made up the story, they'd have known that they were spreading a lie. So the question has to be faced, Would they have gone to their graves proclaiming that it actually happened? Would they have died for what they knew to be a lie? And if they were lying, is it even remotely plausible that not a single one of them under the threat of death wouldn't have admitted that they were frauds just so that they could save themselves from martyrdom? What they saw changed them to the uttermost. They knew they'd seen Jesus rise from the dead, and they laid down their own lives as the ultimate proof of their own utter confidence in the truth of their message. John Stott has written, The concept of resurrection lies at Christianity's heart. If you remove it, Christianity is destroyed. I agree. But it does beg a rather different question, a very basic question that we may never have asked ourselves. Why does the resurrection matter? Well, there are several reasons, but let me just mention two. In the first place, the resurrection proved that Jesus was who he claimed to be when Pilate interrogated the Jewish religious leaders to find out why they wanted him dead, they responded to his question with, By our law he ought to die, because he called himself the Son of God. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1, He was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection is God's proof that Jesus is, Jesus was, who he claimed to be. And the affirmation of the faith that was spreading so rapidly around the ancient world, that Jesus was God's anointed, the Messiah, and indeed God incarnate. The second thing I would mention is that the resurrection confirmed that Jesus had achieved what he'd said he would. You know, without the resurrection, we'd never have known if his death had been accepted by God as the perfect sacrifice to pay for the sin of the world. When the Passover lambs were sacrificed in Egypt, there was a kind of resurrection. In every home that sheltered under the blood of the Lamb, the firstborn was alive. In every home in Egypt that eschewed God's provision, the firstborn lay dead. The sacrifice had been accepted, and the firstborn were received back as though resurrected, the Lamb having died in their place. Reading it from the message, Paul in Romans chapter 5 puts it like this. Now that we are set right with God by means of this sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there is no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. If, when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his Son. Now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by the means of his resurrection life. Indeed, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again from the message, Paul responds to those who deny the resurrection of the dead, saying, If you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that Christ is alive, risen from the dead, How can you let people say there's no such thing as a resurrection? If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. And you are still guilty of your sins. Now I've brought us to this point as it's clear that the resurrection of Jesus is not simply a fact to acknowledge intellectually, but something that has to be responded to with faith, or by believing. Shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus said to Mary, the the sister of Lazarus, to whose tomb Jesus was just about to go, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John's narrative records that Jesus performed a miracle of resuscitation shortly after he'd spoken these words to Mary. But the crucial thing to note is that he used a hugely important word in his conversation with Mary. The word believe. Unfortunately, we devalue that word in our everyday speech. If we're requi- re- replying to a question, we might say, mm, yeah, I believe so, when what we really mean is, I guess that might be right, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Many years ago, my job involved train travel. I was living in Liverpool, but working in Leicester. Fortunately, it was a weekly and not a daily commute. Each week I'd go to Lime Street Station, book my ticket and ask the ticket clerk which platform for my train. The problem was I had to change twice, so it wasn't always the same train or the same platform, especially if there were delays. So I'd ask the ticket inspector at the gate if it was the right train, and if so, I'd go onto to the platform you know, those paper destination stickers that they put on on trains sometimes, they would never ever say Leicester. So I just had to hope that this train would at least get me to Crewe. Just to be sure, I'd, I'd asked a dispatcher if there was a connection at Crew for, for Man Eaton. If so, I'd get on. But I wouldn't sit down. I'd ask other passengers if I was on the right train. Only when totally persuaded did I find a seat. What's that got to do with believing in the way that Jesus used the word? Only when I sat down and committed myself to going on that train, allowing it to take me to its destination, did I believe in the way that Jesus means. To paraphrase, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever stakes his life on trusting me to save him Though he die, yet shall he live. This is no mere intellectual assent. It's an act and an attitude that will impact our whole lives practically. You see, neither the cross nor the resurrection is the end of the story. The apostles didn't die just to confirm the truth of a couple of one-off historical events. Easter changed them, but Pentecost empowered them. Thus began a whole new era, as generation after generation of new disciples also believed that this was genuinely world-changing, that it was factual truth, but with massive implications. Tens of thousands believed in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, In the power of the Holy Spirit, these timid, ill-educated men boldly proclaimed that God's kingdom had indeed drawn near. Saul of Tarsus, the officially recognized church chief persecutor of the Christians, went from murderer to missionary. And his about face is inexplicable if Jesus was not raised from the dead. We've already seen what he wrote in 1 Corinthians, but just to recap, if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. But in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that's the point. On the cross, Jesus offered himself for our redemption. The resurrection confirms that he has made a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. But neither the cross nor the resurrection is the end game. We are called to the ongoing story, to make a difference by being different. And the dynamic is the active believing that Jesus has been raised for our salvation. Hallelujah! We are to bless the nations for empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are to take the gospel of reconciliation with the Lord God to the whole world. This Easter morning, may I challenge us all to be sure that we fully believe in him, that we get on the train and let it take us to our destination, convinced that he is alive today, our Lord and the Saviour of the world. Amen.